That is the greatest opening to an anime I have ever heard. Yeah, I know I used it last time as well, but I think that's going to be my opening music for the foreseeable future. I love that song. I know that I'm, for those of you who don't know, I've recently got into anime within the last year or so. And I, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, Attack on Titan will probably always be my favorite anime. It's definitely the fa- my favorite one that I've watched so far. So for those of you who don't know where that song is from, it is the new opening to part two of the last season of Attack on Titan that just started to come out last Sunday. So I just think that opening is absolutely gas. It's a perfect opening for a podcast, I feel like, too, especially if you don't listen to the words because... Uh, the words won't make sense if you don't watch the anime, but just the opening part of it, the metal part of it, everything, the melody, everything sounds awesome. I know that's like a random way to start this off, but that's definitely going to be my opening for the foreseeable future until maybe I find something better. But that is, it, it's so cool. I know, like I said, I'm an anime noob for the most part, but I think that will always be my favorite opening regardless of what anime I am watching. But enough of that. Welcome back. This is episode, I think, 103 in total. I don't know when I'm going to stop season three. I think when I finally get my guests, my friends on to do the 100 episode special, uh, whenever that may be, hopefully within the next couple weeks, I think that's when I'll change over to season four. But right now, let's just keep rolling with what I got. It doesn't really matter, honestly. It's just It's just how it looks in Apple Podcasts. It looks so much cleaner with all the the different seasons and everything. But yeah, I think it's episode 103. There's like episode 47 or something of season three, which is crazy. But what is going on, everyone? Uh, We are here to talk about the wild, super wild card weekend that didn't really turn out to be too super, if we're being completely honest. I think Every single game, except for maybe one, left a lot to be desired. Uh, We will definitely get into that. And we're also going to talk about divisional matchups as well. So a couple uh, big players potentially coming back in a few matchups. So we'll definitely get into that. But the first thing I want to talk about, we'll go in order. Uh, I do want to say that before the games started this weekend, uh, I put my final predictions up on Instagram and on Twitter, and uh, I did go six and zero this week. The one pick that I wasn't so sure about um, in the last podcast, if you guys recall, was the San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. And you know, I just knew the Cowboys were going to choke in some capacity, uh, so I definitely had my doubts. But I did eventually switch it at the end to the San Francisco 49ers. And if you don't believe me, you can check it out on my Instagram page. It is up there, and I definitely did boast about the six and zero week. But I mean, honestly, these matchups were just so one-sided that it was honestly really easy to call this weekend. This was probably the easiest weekend to call of any playoffs in a really long time. But we'll go in order of games. So the first game that happened this weekend was the Cincinnati Bengals at home against the Las Vegas Raiders. And, you know, Joe Burrow and company just looked absolutely dominant, but then they kind of let, I feel feel like they let their foot off the gas uh, because let me see what the box score says. I think at one point it was like, wasn't it like 20 to three or 20 to six or something like that. And then it wound up, the final score was 26 to 19. And honestly, 
very close to the Cincinnati Bengals blowing it as Derek Carr on fourth down as a veteran quarterback. Didn't even throw the ball technically into the end zone. He threw it short and it was intercepted anyway at the end of the day, but, or yeah, it was intercepted at the end of the day, but it was short of the end zone regardless if he caught it or not. A huge blunder on his part. Um, I think talking about the Raiders, this is not a season necessarily to hang their heads. Uh, I think the way that they lost, uh, like left a lot to be desired, but I think considering all the controversies that they've gone through this whole year, I think that this is definitely a successful season. Mike Mayock is not returning. They mutually parted ways. And I hope that Mike Mayock goes back to NFL Network and does draft coverage because he does a phenomenal job. I think that was where he was. I think that's why the Raiders brought him in because he was just nailing these prospect reports like every single year. And they were like, well, if you can nail them for NFL Network, you can nail them for us. And that's exactly the opposite, or at least in the first couple rounds of every draft that Mike Mayock was a part of. Uh, he definitely did not nail the first few picks. It's historically bad. Uh, you think of Damon Arnett, you know, Henry Ruggs, Alex Leatherwood is looking like a really bad first round pick. I said it from the beginning way last year, uh, Alex Leatherwood probably would have been there in round three if the Raiders would have waited, to be quite honest. He would have at least been there in round two. Leatherwood was not a first round talent. Um, you know, you think of Cleland Farrell as well. Uh, there's just so many guys. I think the only one, even if he, I don't even know if he drafted him or not, but I think the only one he's really hit on in the first round was Josh Jacobs. And Jacobs has been a workhorse for the Raiders. Has he been, you know, amazing? No, but he's been definitely solid. So um, I think Mayock will return to NFL Network, especially with the draft coverage coming up uh, relatively soon. Uh, Rich Biak, I don't know. Basaccia, I don't even know how to say his last name, and it's it's bad because I'm Italian, so I should know how to say Basaka, I think his last name is Rich Basaka, did a fantastic job um, under shitty circumstances, honestly, and the fact that he had them within, what, 10 yards of tying the game and sending it to overtime uh, in the away from home in the wildcard round should be a win. I, I know that he is not returning as well. Uh, he should definitely get a coaching gig somewhere. I know he's a little bit on the older side. I think he's 65 or, or something around that age. I think he should definitely get an opportunity to do something in a bigger capacity, either with the Raiders if they want to retain him or somewhere else. But I think he did a phenomenal job and he handled himself really well and he got his boys ready to play every single week. So that's something really to uh, admire and comm commemorate, honestly, because he did a fantastic job. But moving over to the Cincinnati side, um, you know, their offense sputtered in the second half. Uh, their defense also gave up a couple touchdowns that, you know, could have definitely been avoided. They they let the Raiders hang around and it almost bit them in the butt. But eventually it didn't. My problem, my, my worry with the Cincinnati Bengals is obviously their next matchup against the Tennessee Titans. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, I think this was the most entertaining game of the week. I know 26 to 19 doesn't sound like the most entertaining affair, but it, it definitely was. And it kept me interested coming from a guy who watched basically every single minute of wildcard weekend. Uh, this definitely kept me interested the most. And then you go to the, the game that I watched the least of, or at least the least of over the weekend, not Monday was the Bills and the Patriots. I mean, there's not much to say 47 to 17. Um, the Bills absolutely blew the Patriots out of the water, uh, offensively, probably if you're looking, if you want to go statistic wise, 
This was probably the greatest, how do I put this, the greatest postseason performance a quarterback has ever had. And I know that's going to sound absolutely wild, especially when you consider that Steve Young threw for six touchdowns and what was that Super Bowl? I don't remember what number it was, but he threw for six touchdowns and blew out the Broncos or whatever team it was. But if you just break down the numbers, uh, let's see, Josh Allen, 21 of 25, 308 yards, five touchdowns through the air. He had more touchdowns than incompletions. Uh, He also added uh, 66 yards on the ground. So, uh, you know, 374 total yards, five touchdowns. He had almost, I don't know how he didn't have a perfect quarterback rating. He had 157.6. A perfect quarterback rating is 158.3. And then his total QBR, which is out of 100, was 98.5. So I don't know how those numbers aren't absolutely perfect, but regardless, that doesn't even matter. The The Patriots from beginning to end just couldn't cover the tight end. And the middle of the field was wide open the entire game. I mean, you know, Dawson Knox just obliterated the Patriots linebacker core. Uh, you know, it, it just wasn't particularly close. And the thing that worried me, the, but no, the thing that gets me worried for the next matchup for the Chiefs is that the Bills finally got their ground game really going. Devin Singletary, I think, ran for two touchdowns. Um, regardless, between Josh Allen, Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, and Matt Britta, uh, they you know they all ran effectively. And that's against a very stout New England front seven, too. So something to be worrisome about for the next matchup if you are the Chiefs. I'm not going to get into it that much. That's all I really have to say about this. Mac Jones did not look particularly good in his playoff debut. But then again, I I know that this is going to sound like, oh, you know, there's no excuses. You're an NFL quarterback in your first round pick. You should be better than this. And I totally get that side of the argument. But in terms of Mac Jones having his first ever playoff game in basically zero degree weather in Buffalo with the Bills Mafia, breathing down his neck. Not ideal situation. I think this game would have definitely been a lot different if the tables were turned. If the Patriots won the division and hosted the playoff game, I'm not going to say that the Patriots would have won. I think it definitely would not have been a 30-point blowout. Really 37. That last touchdown was scored with like 40 seconds left. So it was really a 37-point blowout. Uh, it wasn't particularly close at all. And that that it, the Bills just looked fantastic. Then moving on, Sunday, another game that was basically not competitive at all, the Buccaneers and the Eagles. I did preface this matchup earlier last week saying that the Philadelphia Eagles have not beaten a competitive team basically all year. The only team that they beat that ended up over 500 was the New Orleans Saints. Um Yeah, it was just Jalen Hurts did not look good. I heard Jalen Hurts was nursing an ankle injury. That's why he wasn't as fluid running the ball. I'm not going to make excuses for the guy. I still believe in Jalen Hurts, and I think that he at least deserves another year as the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, especially with a weak quarterback class like there is this year. And you have three first-round picks. So if you really wanted to make a difference, you keep Jalen Hurts. Maybe you draft some offensive line depth because they do have one of the best offensive lines in the league. Everyone forgets that Brandon Brooks was out for the entire season. So you bring Brandon Brooks back. You have uh, Lane Johnson, Brandon Brooks. You have Jason Kelsey, Landon Dickerson, and uh, Jordan Mailata. So that's a really, really good offensive line, probably top five in the NFL when they're all healthy. So, you know, you get the offensive line back fully healthy. 
you, you know, you, you establish more of a running game because Miles Sanders played well down the stretch, but he didn't really get going through the first like seven weeks of the season. So, you know, you have a, you have a, a really deep backfield. You got to get them more involved. I think rushing Jalen Hurts as much as they did this entire season kind of hurt them because once you shut down Jalen Hurts as a runner and you force him to stay in the pocket and throw, that's when you could really beat him. Uh, on the defensive side of the ball, the Eagles really need to work on their uh, run defense, especially. I think they're ranked towards the bottom of the NFL. Uh, Fletcher Cox is entering his age 34 season. Brandon Graham is going to be a free agent. I think Josh Barnett is going to be a free agent as well. There's a lot of guys that uh, are going to be free agents that they need to replace. And like I said, they have three first round picks. They could definitely get it done. I think it's 14, 15, and 19. So towards the back end of that first round, there's a lot of really, really good prospects. There's um, great linebacking prospects towards the end of the first round. Immediately, Nicobe Dean comes to mind. Immediately, Devin Lloyd comes to mind. Uh, then you got, you know, interior defensive linemen at number 14 or 15. Easily, DeMarvin Leal could still be there from Texas A&M. You got Jordan Davis, who's a 360-pound monster from the University of Georgia. There's a lot of guys that could be there. Also, um, you think of defensive end, you think of Trayvon Walker, you think of uh, Jermaine Johnson. You know, there's a lot of guys. David Ojabo might still be there at 14 or 15. There's just a ton of ways that they could go. And then also in the secondary, they need some help at safety, I would say. If he fell, because this is just me. I know I'm getting off on a little tangent here talking about the draft. It is literally my favorite thing to talk about. As you guys know, if you watch my YouTube channel, the last 10 videos have been mock drafts. But anyway, um, listen, I love Kyle Hamilton as a prospect. I think that he is. I think besides for Kayvon Thibodeau and Aiden Hutchinson, he is the top, the, the top, top prospect of this draft. I think maybe, I think he's second over Aiden Hutchinson. I think it would go Kevon Thibodeau, uh, Kyle Hamilton, and then Aiden Hutchinson in my rankings, if we're just talking about a big board. But if there's a way that he would fall, I think he's going to fall farther than a lot of people think. Uh, it just really matters on how the first four picks go, I feel like, because if he gets past... I don't know what that noise was that just came out of my throat. I'm sorry if you heard that. That was like a short breath and a cough at the same time. That was weird. Um, I think if he gets past the Jets, I think there's a real slide, and I put that in quotes because, like, if he slides out of the top 10 to, like, 14, he's definitely going to be picked. And the beauty of the Eagles picking around there is because they could get um, an edge rusher, they can get a defensive tackle uh, with that first pick, and then they don't have to worry about it because they have the pick right after it. So regardless, they could just, you know, whoever they're whoever two prospects they're looking at, if they're still there, they can get both of them. And then they, they come right back around at 19. I wouldn't, if he was there at 14 or 15, I wouldn't wait. I would take him with one of those picks and wouldn't chance it him sliding past there. Because at that point, um, after you get past number 16 and you get into the back end of the first round, the value of your picks starts to fall. So teams would be interested in trading up to, you know, possibly get a Kyle Hamilton. This is all hearsay. I don't, I mean, not not even hearsay. That's not even the correct word. This is all rumors. Uh, I just think that he would slide. He also might not be able to get past the Falcons because the Falcons need some real help at safety too, but uh, they have a ton of holes, as I highlighted in my uh, Atlanta Falcons mock draft that I did a, um, a couple weeks ago. But I think there's a lot of ways that they can go with their three first round picks. I think if they keep Jalen Hurts, for another year, really give him a year against better competition to evaluate him and see where you're at. 
then then you take it from there. But they have a lot of picks. Uh, they have a lot of high picks as well. So adding four or five prospects in the first two rounds, two early three rounds, could really, really help develop Jalen Hurts. And maybe that defense could be a lot better with a couple prospects. On the, on the Tampa Bay side of the ball, um, they played good defense. I, I mean, you know, the 15 points they gave up was in the fourth quarter late in the game. It was really 31 nothing. This game was never particularly close. Tom Brady looked fantastic. The one gripe I have against Bruce Arians and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is when it was 31 to nothing at the start of the fourth quarter, why was Tom Brady playing? And he got sacked two more times in the fourth quarter, too. Why are you risking? I understand, like, if you're healthy and you're ready to go, you're going to play. He is the oldest quarterback in football. He is the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, And he has immense playoff success. Why are you risking it when you're up 31 points in the fourth quarter? I never understood that. Maybe there's something that Bruce Arians saw and Tom Brady saw that that was different. Maybe Bruce Arians gave Tom Brady the the choice. Hey, if you want to go out there, good. If not, we got Blaine Gabbert. you know, that's I, that, that just confused me. But other than that, they played a pretty much flawless game. Uh, pass coverage, they were fantastic. They they were uh, – Todd Bowles really has found his uh, niche in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. I mean, he was great in Arizona as a defensive coordinator before he came to the Jets to be a head coach. There are just some guys that can't cut it as head coaches. And immediately comes to mind, you think of Josh McDaniels when he left New England and he went to Denver and he was 6-10 and 10 and then got fired and then came right back. You know, same thing. I think Jim Schwartz was a terrible head coach in Detroit, but then he goes back and was the Eagles defensive coordinator for a few years, and he was great. Same thing with Todd Bowles. I feel like Todd Bowles will never be a good head coach, but he is a fantastic coordinator. Same thing with Vic Fangio. I think the same thing. You know, he was a bad head coach, um, really old school way of thinking that doesn't resonate with the players. But then again, he is a defensive genius. So I think he goes back to the defensive side of the ball. Uh, and really does what he does best, and that's being a defensive coordinator. Same thing with Eric Bieniemy. I hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, Eric Bieniemy deserves head coaching interviews," and absolutely he does. There's no doubt about that. But maybe he doesn't want to be a head coach. Like if if I was the Kansas City brass, I mean, listen, Andy Reid is not getting any younger. You gotta you gotta figure. Even if Casey wins the Super Bowl this year, you gotta figure Andy Reid has few years left. I mean, he's what in his sixties at this point. Um, you got to figure that he is going to either, he's definitely, definitely not going to get fired. So he's definitely going to retire at some point relatively within the next few years, I would think. So if I was Eric Bieniemy and I was the brass of the Kansas city chiefs, I'd be like, listen, if you stick around and you wait out Andy Reid, this is your job. We're going to promote within you'll automatically be the head coach. And when you got Patrick Mahomes and that offense, that's a pretty sweet gig. So I don't know if I was Eric Bieniemy. I don't know if I would take any head coaching interviews, especially if KC promised me the job once Andy Reid retires. Obviously, that's just me talking. I have no idea if that's what the internal conversations are. I don't think that that would ever happen. But that's just what I would think. I mean, you got a guy that knows the the system inside and out. Why even bother bringing someone else in when you got the enemy waiting in the ranks? So I know I went on a little bit of a draft and and uh, a draft tangent and a coaching tangent there. But getting on to the next game that was on the slate was the 49ers and the Cowboys. And I guess you could argue that this is the most competitive game of the week. 23-17, to 17, the San Francisco 49ers won. But 
my only thing, I think the 49ers played a great game. I think the only thing that I have against them was with three minutes left. I, I mean, I was in the car with one of my best friends driving to a restaurant in the middle of Long Island. And he picked me up and there was like three minutes left in the game. And we got to the restaurant 35 minutes later and the game just ended. Like the last three minutes was very poorly coached on both sides. Um, I think that the San Francisco 49ers let were playing way too soft of coverage. They let Dallas essentially think they had a way back into the game multiple times. Um, Dallas was crying about the officiating all game. But let me explain this to you. When you give up 100, I think it was like 180 something rushing yards, something crazy. When you give up like 180 something rushing yards in a game, um, you know, your offense only rushes for 77 yards. You have 14 penalties as a team. You can't blame it all on the officiating. You know what I mean? I mean, I think 10 of those 14 were pre-snap penalties. You cannot blame the the officials for one thing. And by the way, the umpire has to touch the ball before the snap is taken. So let me let me say this. Okay, two seconds left. He puts the ball down, and then he basically runs over Dak Prescott to touch the ball. Uh, I mean, let's be real here. This is just Cowboys fans being Cowboys fans. At the end of the day, I don't really think it would have mattered if they got the snap off or not. They just did not play a good game offensively. Dak Prescott looked lost at times. Uh, Zeke Elliott was playing injured basically the entire season that came out afterwards. Tony Pollard really cooled down at the second half of the season after starting off like gangbusters. And then on the other side of the ball, Debo Samuel has been fantastic. Uh, what did he have? 118 total yards and a touchdown. He ran for 63 yards. Uh, he had, I think, like 50, more than that, actually. I think he might, might have ran for 70 or something like that, 80 yards. He had 40 receiving yards as well to, to throw on top of that. He was fantastic. He's been a real Swiss Army knife for the San Francisco 49ers and honestly one of the best players in the NFL this year, one of the most dynamic. Um, you know, Elijah Mitchell ran the ball all over the Cowboys as well. Jimmy G played well up until his interception in the fourth quarter that let the, I think it was 23 to 10 at the time that he threw the pick. And then the Dallas Cowboys scored on that turnover. So I'll talk about the next matchup after, but that is a cause for concern. But yeah, I mean, the Cowboys just inexcusable, especially the call at the end, the planned quarterback draw. What were you going to catch them napping? There's 14 seconds left in the game and you're 80 yards away from the end zone. How many yards are you going to pick up on a court on a, on a QB sneak with no timeouts left? I didn't understand that at all. Um, and the fact that Mike McCarthy and Kellen Moore came out and said that that was part of the game plan, you're just compounding the issue. I mean, Mike McCarthy should have been fired yesterday, uh, in my opinion. If I'm if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, I like Kellen Moore. I think Kellen Moore is a really good uh, offensive coordinator. I know he gets exposed from time to time, but I think that Kellen Moore is a already a better head coach than Mike McCarthy. If I was the Dallas Cowboys, I'd promote Kellen Moore to – uh, head coach and then fire Mike McCarthy. He just, I mean, he's been vastly unimpressive in his tenure as a, as a Dallas Cowboy coach. I mean, I saw a tweet the other day that said, I think people don't understand how much of an accomplishment it is for Aaron Rodgers that he took a Mike McCarthy led team to the Super Bowl and won it. And I thought that that was a really funny tweet because it, it resonated with me. I was like, yeah, that's true. He sucks. And, uh, and it just proves, I guess, how good Aaron Rodgers is. But 
yeah, I think the Cowboys have no one to blame but them, but themselves. When you have that many penalties, especially pre-snap penalties, you just lack discipline. Uh, you know, Nevin Gallimore uh, at the end of the game had a very, very costly penalty. I think he lined up in the neutral zone. You know, you just can't blame. Right away, they're looking for an out, Dallas Cowboys fans and the Cowboys. And the way that Dak Prescott... I don't remember what the quote was, but I remember it was basically blaming the loss on the officials. And that's just not the way that a quarterback, a leader, quote unquote, as good as Dak Prescott is supposed to be. You're not supposed to handle it like that. You know, you're already looking for an out. Blame the fact that you guys had all those penalties, you gave up all those rushing yards, and you couldn't execute on offense. That's the reason why you lost, not because the umpire tackled you at the end of the game. That's ridiculous. Moving on to the next game. Um, you know, the Chiefs and the Steelers, it was a, it was a game for a while. The Steelers went up 7 nothing after a, what was it, a fumble return? A fumble return for a touchdown by T.J. Watt, who was an absolute menace. He was basically the catalyst for both of the KC turnovers. When Patrick Mahomes threw an interception, he tipped the ball up in the air, and Devin Bush intercepted it. And then uh, he picked up the loose ball and ran it all the way in for a touchdown to give the Steelers an early 7-0 lead. But it was just all KC after that. I knew the game was over. That with like 15 seconds left in the first in the first half, uh, Travis Kelsey went for like a 40-yard touchdown and like weaved in and out of the defense. It was just it's like just a terrible effort on the Steelers' part. If you look at if you look at Ben Roethlisberger's spray chart of his passes, I think like three of them went past like 20 yards. It's just, thank God. It's like old yeller. Like I feel like Ben, ben Roethlisberger has just been dying on the football field for the last two years, uh, especially after the elbow surgery too. I mean, and la- it's so funny because last year he threw for like over 5,000 yards, but that's also because they had no, you know, James Conner was not playing well. They had really no one else behind him that was playing well uh, before they drafted Najee Harris. And that's like some of the pressure off, but I mean, we just saw a real Peyton Manning effect with Ben Roethlisberger this year. His arm was neutralized. Um, you know, he was immobile. Anytime that you got pressure in his face, he was going down. It was just sad to see, and I'm kind of glad that I'm glad that he got another opportunity in the playoffs to end his career. I know it was like no mercy shown whatsoever by Patrick Mahomes and company, but it is what it is. You got to do what you got to do to win. And Casey was just clearly the better team offensively and defensively. I mean, Patrick Holmes, 404 yards, five touchdowns and a pick. Give me a break. He was fantastic. Um, that's really all you got to say. It was a blowout, 42 to 21. It was just a blowout, essentially. Um, moving on to the game that was last night. Um, here's the thing. We're going to go into a little bit of a talk here real quick because I've been saying it for a long time, and I did say it last week as well. If the Cardinals were to lose, I think that Cliff Cliff Kingsbury should be fired. And especially after the performance that they put up last night, 34 to 11 was the final score. Kyler, yes, I understand that the first half collapse was not Cliff Kingsbury's fault. Because, I mean, you look at the way that Kyler Murray'd play. I mean, you know, he was about to get sacked in the end zone. He just chucks the ball up, and it's an easy pick six. I mean, that was a, a ridiculous play. Then the interception, Bob, you know, bouncing off of two people's helmets. The, the offense just played terrible. But you're also not preparing your guys to play. I feel like Cliff Kingsbury is just that really, really handsome coach that, you know, just has all the players around him do everything because his his team is just so talented. I feel like there's no coaching involved with Cliff Kingsbury. He feels to me more like a friend to his players than a coach. 
Um, you know, I, I, I just don't, you know, he comes in, I was telling this to my dad before we were talking about it. He comes in at the end of 2018. They have Josh Rosen already. They wasted a first round pick on Josh Rosen. Never gave the guy a fair shot at it, to be honest with you. He comes in, he goes, I can't work with Josh Rosen. I need a different quarterback. So they draft Kyler Murray, number one overall. I have no problem with that. I think Kyler Murray is is slightly overrated, but I still think he's a solid quarterback. I still think he's top 12. Um, you know, obviously the first year, you're probably not going to make the playoffs. Rookie, rookie quarterback, not much talent around. Last year, they acquired more talent. They had DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, they got more talent on the defensive side of the ball as well. They were just a win away from the playoffs, and then they choked it away. They lost to John Walford, of all guys, you know, uh, in, in AA, I think it was an XFL or AAF quarterback before that, John Walford. He was on the Jets for a little while, too. Well, go figure. He was on the Jets for a little while as well. But, you know, okay, so that's a bummer. I understand Kyler Murray got hurt at the end of last year. Um yeah, you miss out. So this is the year. So you make the playoffs. You start off. I don't remember if it was ten and one or nine and one, whatever it was. So you start off ten and one. You easily look like the best team in the NFL. Then you crash towards the end of the year. You wind up losing the division and becoming a wild card team. Okay, not a big deal. You're facing your your division rival Rams. You played them really, really well the first time, and the second time wasn't so great. But the first time you ran for 184 yards, and you 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 know you you ran all over them, and you played really, really good football. And then you come out as flat as humanly possible and and put in that performance. I, I think that Cliff Kingsbury needs to be held accountable for that. I understand, like I said, that, you know, Kyler Murray did not play his best game. But Cliff, at, at what point you have all this talent? I mean, you name it, they have it. Like, look, offensive side of the ball, you have Kyler Murray, Christian Kirk, uh, James Conner, Chase Edmonds, DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, uh, Zach Ertz. Offensive line, you know, you have Rodney Hudson, you have a DJ Humphreys. They have they ha- have plenty of firepower on offense. Defensively, you have Isaiah Simmons, you have Zayvon Collins, you know, they have Byron Murphy, they have Chandler Jones. I mean, come on, like this this is ridiculous. And even special teams, you have Matt Prater, who's one of the best kickers um, of our generation. I mean, come on, you, you you have to be held accountable at some point. Get someone in there. That could win you the big game. That's just my opinion. And on the Rams side of the ball, good for Matthew Stafford. He finally got his first playoff when he played very well. Uh, I don't know exactly what his stats were. Let me look them up. I have it right here. Um, his stats were, hey, 13. He only had he only had 13 completions, but he only passed the ball 17 times. 13 of 17, 202 yards, two touchdowns. He didn't have to do anything crazy. Uh, they went up 21 nothing, and it was essentially just damage control at that time. You know, just don't turn the ball over. Don't make any stupid throws, and, you know, you're going to win the game. And that's exactly what happened. So he played pretty much flawlessly. The defense was fantastic. Um, that's all, all you could really say. It's a very disappointing end to the Arizona Cardinals season, but it's a fantastic look for the L.A. Rams. So now let's switch. Let me take a sip of water here real quick. Oh, maybe one more, a little dry. Mm. Excellent. Now we move on to talking about the divisional round. So the divisional round schedule looks like this. So you have on Saturday at 4.30, you have the Cincinnati Bengals at Tennessee. That is a nice looking matchup there. 
Then you have Saturday night at 8.15. You have the San Francisco 49ers going to Green Bay. Also a beautiful matchup. There's really, I mean, all four matchups are fantastic. Then Sunday at 3 o'clock, you have the Rams and the Buccaneers. The Rams at Tampa Bay, right? Yes. And then the divisional round um, finishes up on Sunday at 6.30 with the Bills going to Arrowhead against the Chiefs. Sorry, I really needed that. As you could hear, I was struggling for a while there. Sorry uh, sorry about that burp, but it is what it is. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the first game. you got the Bengals and the Titans, and there's two things that I really want to talk about. Um, three things, really. So the first thing I want to say is that the Tennessee Titans defense came into this year looking incredibly uninspiring, but then turned out to be one of the better units in the NFL. I believe that they were eighth or ninth in total defense. Uh, Mike Vrabel has just been a fantastic coach since he's taken over in Tennessee. I don't really think he gets enough credit for being as good of a coach as he is, especially a leader and a motivator. Uh, I think he easily runs away with the coach of the year award in the AFC because, I mean, come on, the guy was spectacular. You lose the best running back in football for basically after week, was it week eight? They lose the best running back in football. You bring in Julio Jones, who basically was a non-factor all season. He was injured. You know, he was he was a shell of his former self. And then your best wide receiver was on IR for two separate stints. And your best pass rusher was on IR for a little while, too, and Bud Dupree. And they were the number one seed in the AFC. That's something really to lo and behold. Okay. The other two things I want to say is not only – well, really one thing. I guess I can lump it into one thing. Not only is Derrick Henry – uh, slated or on track at least to return for Saturday's game against Cincinnati. Also, fullback Tory Carter is also slated to come back. And I know that fullback really, if we're if we're not talking about Kyle Uzcheck or Patrick Ricard, I mean we're not really talking about fullbacks at all. Well, let's be honest with you. But Tory Carter flies under the radar as one of one of the best fullbacks in football. He, I mean, how many times do the Tennessee Titans play out of eye formation? How many times does he clear the path for Derrick Henry? This is huge. If they could get both of these guys back healthy and playing against a middling Cincinnati run defense, this could very well be an ugly day for the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, the Tennessee Titans are, are vastly improved against the run they still limited against the pass they kind of play a bend don't break against the pass and then they really rely on Kevin Biard to kind of come and clean it up and be the ball hawk I mean I think he was like second or third in the NFL he had six interceptions this year he's just one of those guys that always is around the interception lead in in the NFL I think this is his fourth or fifth year in the NFL and he's always he's been in the top 10 every single year so that's what they kind of do they kind of rely on ball hawking safeties to kind of clean up any kind of mess. Um, Joe Burrow on the other side of the on the other side of the spectrum has been spectacular. I mean, he had a lot of early season interceptions, but then really cleaned it up and had a seventy percent completion percentage. Led the NFL in completion percentage. He doesn't make too many risky throws. We did see a lot of risky throws against the Raiders. A lot of shots downfield later on in the game, but they were winning by thirteen at the time, fourteen at the time. So I could see kind of trying to put the nail in the coffin, but I think the way to win this game for Cincinnati is just don't turn the ball over. Try and establish the run. It's going to be tough. You know, they got Jeffrey Simmons. They got 
you know, Bud Dupree, they have Harold Landry, they have Danico Autry. It's going to be tough. They, they like to crash the line of scrimmage and they like to basically drop the offensive lineman into the lap of the quarterback and into the lap of the running back. So it's going to be tough to establish the run, um, especially with Cincinnati's so-so offensive line. But stranger things have happened. I think if you establish the run and make them respect the run and then Joe Burrow could pick apart, you know, um, the Tennessee defense through, you know, quick passes, intermediate passes, and then taking the occasional shot. I think that that is a, a good way to beat the Tennessee Titans. You also have to win the time of possession game against the Tennessee Titans because, you know, they have one of the best rushing attacks in the NFL, the best rushing attack when Derrick Henry is healthy and they dominate time of possession. Uh, Ryan Tannehill is a master at dominating time of possession and keeping the ball for his offense. I mean, the guy just knows, I mean, I guess you could contribute that to Mike Vrabel and the offensive coordinator as well, but Ryan Tannehill really knows how to dominate that, that time of possession game. So if you could come close to splitting time of possession or come close to winning time of possession, I think that's huge because the way that this is not a flashy offense by any means, Tennessee. You know, they're going to try and run the ball down your throat, and then they're going to take, you know, occasional shots. They use uh, RPOs a lot as well. Ryan Tannehill is a sneaky good athlete. Uh, They're going to try and pick you apart through the run game and then, you know, short, quick passes. But this is not an explosive offense by any means, especially passing-wise. So you have to try and control the line of scrimmage. You have to try and win the time of possession. And that's really the way that you're going to beat the Titans if you could control the ball more than they can. I know that sounds like a broad spectrum idea. Oh, well, obviously, if I have the ball for 45 minutes and they have it for 15, of course I'm going to win. That's true. But I mean, if they take that 15 minutes and throw the ball 80 yards downfield four times, you know, you might not win. But I think controlling the line of scrimmage and time of possession is key for the Cincinnati Bengals. And then um, the same thing for the Titans. I mean, you have to control the line of scrimmage. You have to make the pass rush of the Cincinnati Bengals respect the run game because if Trey Hendrickson plays, he's a big loss for Cincinnati. And we have to talk about this is Larry Ogunjobi going down for the rest of the playoffs. That's a huge loss. Seven sacks on the interior of the defensive line. Also a stout run defender. Um, You know, you still have DJ reader who is one of the better nose tackles in football. And then you have BJ Hill, as the other defensive tackle now, but I mean, BJ Hill is good. He is no Larry Ogunjobi. So uh, I expect Tennessee likes to run an inside run. Tennessee, let me set, let me say that sentence one more time. Tennessee likes to run an inside run zone concept a lot because obviously Derek, Derek Henry is not the fastest running back out there, but he is the most powerful. So he can get through the line of scrimmage with relative ease. So if you could pin back BJ Hill, that hole will be wide open. Try and take Trey Hendrickson out of the equation and then try and take Jesse Bates out of the equation in the secondary because Jesse Bates, who has been one of the better young safeties over his career, really didn't have that great of a season this past year, Um, but he played fantastic against the Raiders. So he's coming off of a little bit more momentum. He's coming down. He's crashing the line of scrimmage. He's breaking up passes in coverage. Like He's definitely getting better as the season goes along. He's He's you know, going back to what he used to do. So maybe taking him out of the equation, he's their biggest playmaker in the secondary. And then Awuzie and Mike Hilton have been fantastic this year too. So 
maybe using the tight ends more. So if you get Anthony Fersker in the, you know, if you can get him four or five catches in the middle of the field, really take them, really take that secondary out of the equation. I think that would be a good way to win the game. You just got to try and pick apart this Cincinnati defense. They're middling, but they got a good pass rush and they have playmakers in the secondary. So I, I feel like it's too early to give predictions, but if I were going to give a prediction, I I have to lean more towards Tennessee because I feel like getting Derrick Henry back is just a massive like boot, like steroid shot into the ass. Like you're immediately getting the best running back in football back. So uh, I, that is going to be very, very hard for the Cincinnati Bengals to contain, especially with their best defensive tackle now out for the rest of the postseason and Larry Ogunjobi. Um, it's going to be tough. So I'm going to lean more towards the Titans. I think I might come on and do another episode maybe on Thursday or Friday, really giving my final predictions. It'll probably be a quick episode. This is more an in-depth analysis, but right now I'm going to have to lean towards the Tennessee Titans. Then you go down to the other matchup of Saturday. It is the 49ers and the Packers. And right away, everyone wants to say, oh, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers is obviously going to dominate. He's been fantastic this year. Everyone forgets that week two, if it wasn't for the San Francisco 49ers leaving 37 seconds on the clock, which apparently was too much when you have Aaron Rodgers on the other side of the field. When you leave 37 seconds on the clock, they were 37 seconds away from beating the Green Bay Packers. Um, Also, Aaron Rodgers is 0-3 in his career against San Francisco in the playoffs. So obviously that is a historical stat. That means nothing right now because every time that they've played, they have been a different team. It's It's not like he's playing the same exact team every single year in the playoffs. So that is just really a historical stat. It's a team stat, not a player stat. Uh, but you know, Aaron Rodgers, I don't know, like the, the 49ers can continue to like baffle me. Um, I think if you want keys to victory, as long as Jimmy G doesn't turn the ball, I'm not, I'm not even trying to be like funny. Cause you know how I, I'm very critical of Jimmy Garoppolo, but as long as Jimmy G doesn't turn the ball over and they could run effectively because green Bay has a very, very stout run defense. Very stout. So, you know, don't let the last couple weeks of the season fool you, fool you, especially when Nick Chubb played against them. I mean, Nick Chubb is one of the best running backs in the NFL, but, you know, uh, they they play well. I mean, Kenny Clark is one of the better defensive linemen in the NFL. You know, Rashawn Gary has played well. They're getting back Zadarius Smith as well. So let's not forget about that. One of their best pass rushers is coming back and a former all pro. That's also huge. Uh, really, I don't see many ways that the San Francisco 49ers can be in this game. I think if Green Bay doesn't come out hot, that'll give San Francisco the advantage because I feel like the last few, like I feel like the last four or five weeks of the season, Green Bay kind of came out flat at the beginning of the of, of the game, and kept some teams in it longer than they should have been. So immediately Christmas comes to mind with the Browns. Like the Green Bay didn't really come out that they came out flat, and then they got hot as the game went along. But it allowed the Browns to gain confidence and believe that they could be in this game. So if you can come out and put up 
14 or 17 points in the first quarter. I know that's asking a lot, especially the way that the game moves nowadays. A lot of games, the first quarter ends 7-0, 3-0, 3-3. You know, if you could put up 17 points in the first maybe 20 minutes of the game before San Francisco can get started, I think that's going to deal them a massive blow. Because if you think about it, that's the same way that the San Francisco 49ers played against the Dallas Cowboys this past week. They were up, what was it, 16-3 to at one point? They were up because they came out and they scored 13 unanswered or or 10 unanswered. And at one point it was 16 to three and it really kind of deflated the Dallas Cowboys and gave the San Francisco 49ers defense that much more confidence. So if Green Bay comes out and starts firing away, I think that that'll be a massive key to victory because this San Francisco 49ers defense relies on momentum. Uh, They're not specifically that they're very talented. You know, you got Dre Greenlaw, Fred Warner in the middle. Uh, their pass rush is fantastic. I don't know if Nick Bosa is playing, and that's another huge loss. That's a massive loss if he's not playing. Let me look and see if, if there was any kind of – let me see here. Let's see if there's any update on Nick Bosa. Nick Bosa injury update. Uh, Bosa and Fred Warner both expected to play. Jimmy Garoppolo has a shoulder sprain. Okay, so Nick Bosa is is expected to play. So that's big as well because it didn't look good. If you guys watched the game, it didn't look good, his injury. That was a that was a concussion, a hard hit. So, you know, I'm glad that he is healthy and he'll be able to play. But, you know, Aaron, they, <clears throat> Devontae Adams is just so dominant at the line of scrimmage. It, I feel like I'm at a loss for words to describe this game, but... I, I I just think the Packers have it this year. I feel like, and I know we said that last year too, but they just they just look different this year. I feel like they're just more precise. They're running the ball that much better this year as well, and that's big because the emergence of A.J. Dillon this year has been tremendous. You know, you have a dual threat in the backfield between Aaron Jones, who when, in his own right, when Aaron Jones gets hot, he's borderline unstoppable. And then you have Quadzilla, A.J. Dillon, who when he gets hot, and he's also a dual threat as well. Aaron Jones is a great receiver out of the backfield. So is A.J. Dillon. So there's just so many ways that they could come at you. It, it, it's going to be tough. You know, obviously the Wiley veteran Randall Cobb will probably have some kind of factor as well. Uh, then you have a deep threat in Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Equimania St. Brown could be a factor too. Aaron Rodgers just spreads the ball around so superbly that you, really it doesn't matter how you attack it. He's going to get the ball to his playmakers at some point in time. I am going to go this is a per, this will probably be a permanent um prediction but I am going to say that the 49ers go down to the Packers relatively easily too. I feel like this will be probably a two touchdown game. Aaron Rodgers just has has been too much on fire this entire season and everyone is just playing crisp pristine football on on the defensive side. You think of Rasul Douglas, Eric Stokes is playing well, Jair Alexander coming back from injury has been playing well as well. So just too many playmakers coming back at the same time for San Francisco to keep up, I feel like. Moving on to the next game, it is the first game on Sunday. It is the Rams and the Buccaneers and uh they did meet earlier this year. I think that was what week 3 or 4. And the Rams did pretty soundly beat the um, Buccaneers. If you recall, I think that was when Rob Gronkowski got injured. He was having a superb season up until then. He broke like four or five of his ribs. Um, 
you know, and now you think about it and they have significantly less weapons. This is a game where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to have to throw the ball a lot more. See, like against the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, Kashawn Vaughn and, um, oh God, what is the other guy's name? Oh, Giovanni Bernard. We're running the ball pretty effectively throughout that entire game. Uh, this is a game where Tom Brady's probably going to have to win it with his arm. And that's tough going up against that secondary. Um, you know, Aaron Donald is, they're going to have to take Aaron Donald out of the equation if they want to win this game. I am still leaning towards the Buccaneers though, in terms of a prediction, just because like, how could you, how could you bet against Brady? I know it sounds like a, like a stupid concept, but I mean, the guy just consistently gets it done. I would love to see Matthew Stafford and the Rams just come out and start throwing the ball deep because the, 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 the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense makes no sense. They're first or second against the run, and then they're second or dead last against the pass. So they just love to give up a ton of yards, and Matthew Stafford likes to sling it. So if they could confuse him and get him caught up in coverages and get a couple interceptions, um, you know, that would be key because if you look past the let, if you look besides for this playoff game. If you look back to the last five or six weeks of the regular season, Matthew Stafford threw a ton of picks. Um, he threw a ton of picks because of zone coverage. When you don't, Matthew Stafford is a gunslinger with incredible ball placement. When you pressure him and he escapes the pocket, he has one of the strongest arms on the run that I've ever seen. So if you can keep him in the pocket and rush three or four guys, and play seven in coverage, it's going to be, for any quarterback, it'll be immensely tough for them to get the job done. Especially with a front four like the 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 Tampa Bay Buccaneers have. I mean, you got Shaq Barrett, you have Joe Tryon, Vita Vea, you know, they're fantastic. I mean, it's going to be really tough for anyone to contain that front four. So I think if they could drop seven in coverage and get a decent enough pass rush to the quarterback with four guys, I think that would be amazing. I think that would be a huge advantage for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So this one's definitely tough. Uh, I don't know exactly what I'm going to go with right now. That's why I'm going to say I'm going to come back to you guys with a final prediction. But this game is in Tampa Bay, and the first game that they had – think it was in LA, right? Yeah, they beat them in LA. I think, <clears throat> sorry, I had a lot of salt this morning. Throat's a little dry. Um, I think the home field advantage has a big, big factor to play. Uh, I, I just also, Matthew Stafford does not play well on the road. I think his splits home and away are pretty bad. Um, I know that he did throw like, seven interceptions in the last like six weeks away from home. So including three pick sixes, I'm pretty sure. So not exactly ideal, but if I had to go with my gut right now, I'd have to say that the Buccaneers are going to win. Uh, and I know it sounds so boring, but I just have to go with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for this one. And then moving on to the last game that we have of the week, or the divisional round rather, is the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. And I do believe that this is the time 
that Josh Allen finally overtakes Patrick Mahomes. I just think that the like for as inconsistent as Buffalo has looked at times this year, that's how fantastic they have looked the last few weeks. The defense has really caught fire. They are giving up barely anything in the passing game. They are giving up nothing in the run game. But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you look at KC, and it's kind of the same thing. Like KC has been very, very stout against the run. Uh, Pass-wise, they've been fantastic. I think the offensive line of the Buffalo Bills is going to have to play really, really well, really contain that pass rush, and kind of let Josh Allen do what he do what he has to do. I think Dawson Knox is a huge, huge factor in this game because if you go back to the game where Buffalo basically dominated KC in KC this year. Dawson Knox had, I think, three catches for 88 yards and two touchdowns, and he was just, you know, going crazy all over the KC defense. Obviously, this is a different team. This is a different KC team than we saw in that first meeting, but this is also a different team than we saw in the first meeting as well for for Buffalo. They're playing their best football. Josh Allen is not only playing, you know, with – a chip on his shoulder. He is being he is more accurate than he's ever been throwing the football. Uh, he's throwing the ball into tight windows. He's taking chances. He's, you know, he's not running as much, but he's running, I feel like, more effectively now. You know, in prior game, like look at last week. He ran the ball six times for 66 yards, but maybe last year that would have been 12 times for 66 yards. I feel like he's taking um he's making better decisions and his composure and his processing ability has gotten that much better, not only throughout his career, but throughout this entire season. Stefan Diggs was relatively quiet last game. Uh, I feel like he is going to go off as well. Uh, he was also There was also no need for him to really go off in that game. That game was over before it even started um, against New England. But I'm going to have to say the Bills are going to win. Like, I, I just think... I think that this is going to be a rivalry that we are going to see many, many times over the next decade. I feel like Josh Allen and and Patrick Mahomes will meet each other in the playoffs at least four or five more times within the next 10 years. And I feel like this is the first time that Josh Allen will get the better of Patrick Mahomes. You know, they, I think they've learned a lot from last year's AFC championship game. Um, they're definitely not going to get blo- – I mean, last year – what was the score of last year's AFC Championship game? Let me pull that up real quick. Uh, 2021, 2021 AFC Championship game score, uh, 38 to 20. So it was basically – I don't. It's not, that's not a blowout. 18 points is not a blowout. But uh, it was very one-sided. Uh, and I think that the Buffalo Bills, especially with Tremaine Edmonds, Matt Milano, I remember Travis Kelsey absolutely killing the Bills last year. And I don't think Travis Kelsey played a particularly good game against the Kansas against the Buffalo Bills this past year, this past meeting. I'm getting a lot of things wrong today. Uh, <laughs> and I think that if the Bills can take him out of the equation, Travis Kelsey out of the equation, and have safety help over the top, against Tyreek Hill and drop seven or eight guys into coverage like they did the first time. Okay, so the first this the last time they played, defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier dialed up a total of zero blitzes. The first time in the in the last like 30 years that a team won a football game without blitzing one single time. So I don't know the absolute term of a blitz. But I feel like a blitz is more than four rushers, four or five rushers. 
let me actually see what that, I've never actually taken the time to what is exactly a blitz? Let's see. Let's learn together. What is a blitz in football? Let's see. Let's see what the a tactic used by the defense to destroy the pad during a blitz. A higher than usual number of defensive players. Okay, so so it's got to be six, at least six. They blitzed Patrick Mahomes zero times and dropped seven or eight guys into coverage. They played Tampa two coverage the entire time, two safeties over the top. Patrick Mahomes was not able to figure it out at all. And I know that it's going to be different this time around. He has adapted tremendously throughout the season to this Tampa two coverage that a lot of teams are putting on him. But the Bills did it in the most successful form possible. And I feel like they will make the necessary adjust adjustments to make it even better. So I am going to say the Buffalo Bills win. I might come at you guys again with another episode a little bit later on in the week, maybe just to go even deeper into these matchups. But as of right now, I have my AFC championship games as the Bills versus the Titans and then the Packers against the Buccaneers. So let me know what you guys think. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, the divisional round predictions and the wild card weekend recap. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I might be coming at you again later on this week. Uh, I don't know exactly, but just keep checking. You might be surprised. Who knows? But uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, I appreciate it. Please share the episode if you can. Please subscribe if you are listening on Spotify. Please uh, follow if you are listening on iTunes. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. Have a great day.